a lot of people would say that there's a bit of an undersupply and, and especially an undersupply of more of the, the quality of campgrounds that people are now looking for. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Dylan Marma. Dylan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Todd. It's great to see you. Yeah, man. It's been a long time. We said that uh, before we jumped on here or before we hit the record button, but it's been a long time. I'm uh, excited to see you just really and hear about really what you're up to. You've done a lot of cool things uh, since we last uh, got to see each other. And so I uh, want to dive in. So a little bit about Dale and he's the principal of uh, you. <laughs> Man, you just, you fooled me because I would have said it perfectly, but now I'm going to say it wrong, but Requity uh, Group, a vertically integrated real estate private uh, equity company. And uh, he's been investing full-time for the last five years, been a lead sponsor of over $150 million in transactions, including over 70, 750 uh, multifamily apartments, 2,000 lots of manufactured housing communities and RV campgrounds. And I really want to dive into some of that stuff. Uh, Dylan's a firm believer that through careful deal selection, attracting exceptional people and utilizing technology backed systems, you can ensure above average risk adjusted returns through real estate. And man, I would completely agree with that. So Dylan, with that said, man, why, why don't you just give our listeners a bit more about your background? And I want to dive into some of the, some of the fun stuff. Yeah, sure thing. So I'll just give you kind of the, the high level. Um, but yeah, started off a little bit over five years ago after studying avidly the world of multifamily syndication. I took a big leap of faith and left my W-2. I had a couple of single family home rentals through turnkey rental company and enough cash to help me partner my way into a 21 unit multifamily building. And then from there on, um, was fortunate to link up with some partners in the Southeast that had existing experience, but never raised outside investor capital. Uh, so moved out to Tennessee, partnered for you know, three years um, in the multifamily space and worked on, like you said, about 800, 750, 800 doors or so. And um, you know, really kind of cut my teeth there in the multifamily space and learned a lot about um, the real estate business as a whole and, you know, the operation side of the business as we were self-managing. My partner was leading the property management side of the business. And then uh, a little bit over two years ago, actually about the week COVID, week before COVID hit, <laughs> we we decided to you know go in a different direction just because we had different long-term goals at that time. And I, so I, I really saw a lot of opportunity in the mobile home park space at that time. And it just didn't make sense to me that these mobile home communities were trading at you know, seven caps or, you know, eight caps when, when you were seeing, you know, five and six caps in the traditional multifamily space. And as you dig in and kind of look further into it, the actual risk on traditional mobile home communities, I, I view as, as very comparable. And in some ways, some would argue it's less risky than, than traditional multifamily. So I saw a little bit of a gap there that this is like a great place to you know, start the new company. And we started Requity, started buying mobile home communities. 
And we early on started to see that thesis play out and started to see the cap rate compression take shape. And while we were starting to build our portfolio of mobile home communities, uh, we started to also, a lot of the same brokers in this space also happened to broker RV campgrounds. So we started to see more and more of these RV campgrounds. We initially purchased a half mobile home community, half RV campground. And then we ended up finding a, our first sort of pure play RV campground that was 140-ish um, sites. And it was all long-term, what we call seasonal sites where they pay for the year, they have year-long leases. And we said, well, this looks simple enough to, and you know, similar enough to what it is that we're doing. So we, we jumped into it. And then sure enough, we started to fall in love with the space, started to you know, understand all of the nuances that come along with the campgrounds and started to just learn, learn up on the space and then pursue different types of RV campgrounds throughout the Southeast, uh, both consisting of your seasonal campgrounds or you know campgrounds that are full of what we call your annual site agreements as well as campgrounds that have more of a, a short term or, or or a transient component to it and uh, that, that's really been the majority of our activity in the last year or so is uh, last year and a half really has been a lot of campgrounds and uh, it's been you know great uh, great business to us so far what which do you prefer uh the the long term or short term or do you like to see a campground that has a good mix of both long term and short term what, is there a better answer to that yeah so so i don't think there's a right or wrong answer but i think every investor has their preference when i initially got in i said well i love sort of that sticky long term consistent revenue and yeah. you know look at the two big reits it's sun communities and then els which is sam's Ellis company and ELS tends to lean a lot more on their annual site agreements and has a lot more long-term, whereas Sun Communities is more focused on driving NOI to be the absolute highest it can be, right? And both of them do exceptionally well. Um, but I would say that we've leaned more into modeling after what ELS does with more of these uh, long-term site agreements, buying majority of our portfolios along the coast. And we like the campgrounds that, that sort of serve as a second home, so to speak, or almost like an affordable version of a, of a lake house or, or an ocean house, right? Where someone can keep their RV there year round and go every weekend that they want to and go and have fun and build a community and make friends with everyone else in the campground and and uh, have this be their place where they can you know, effectively treat it like a, you know an ocean house and then they don't have to deal with the taxes and the insurance and everything else that comes along with having you know, a house on the on the uh near the water so that's really better than bread and butter but as a portfolio we really target more of like a 70 30 um that's that's we like 70 percent long-term annual study agreements and 30 percent um more of the the short-term transient to help increase our exposure and try to you know, maximize our revenue i suppose um you know just thinking about it your your long term is going to be probably less potential upside in the NOI, but a lot, a lot more stable where you're short-term, you're getting higher rates, uh, probably a lot higher risk because you've got the vacancy risk. You've got, you know, just people that are in and out. Um, so to probably more damage risk, uh, probably more maintenance risk. Um, is that. Yeah, is that, that that's definitely accurate. Yeah. I would say that on a long-term just trying to do some quick math here, but I would say that your your income might be 50%, probably somewhere between 30 to 50% less per site per year over the course of the year. But then you're also able to run it on a little bit of a lower expense ratio, especially if 
the majority of the community is long-term. You don't need yeah. quite as much, you know, front desk staff that's staff helping right. all the check-ins and checkouts, and, you know, you don't need to hold quite as many events. So, so your expenses do go down as well with the long-term model. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you, yeah, you, you've got a lot of check-in checkouts. So you have to have more staff there and that's an expense. And um, yeah, so I, I, I didn't think about that expense, but definitely. Um what what is attractive like what do you look for when you're looking for an rv park you know what like if you're saying mm -hmm. hey we we like this deal why did you like that one versus a different one are there like key elements that you truly look for so the first thing we look for is protecting our downside i think that's the most important piece within the campground is not you, you can make this is the tricky part about this space is you can make any single campground look nice on a spreadsheet, even, even more so than you can in say apartments, because mm -hmm. apartments, at least you have co-star and you have pretty predictable levels of rent and you sort of can know the, the areas after the occupancy. Whereas in this case, usually the best data you have might be some competitors, properties, PNLs that you've seen over time. And you sort of aggregated your own internal uh, database to help you see what's possible. So for us, the first thing is trying to really get a good sense of the in-place financials and the area's overall level of demand. A lot of the industry likes to say, be within two hours of a major city. We like to be more within one hour or, or actually within a major MSA because we feel like your risk, if you're two hours away from a big city, is that you know, your risk there is that people can build closer to the city and it can build nicer stuff. And then you start to become sort of obsolete and don't have as much of a purpose as you maybe once did. So the first thing is, you know, finding a good location. In our case, we like to be in, inside of 200K plus MSAs, and we like to be um, within an hour, you know, or less uh, drive from, from major uh, cities that we can draw from. Um, and we also like to underwrite the deals in a way where even if we are running it or if it's currently running with some short-term uh, stay income that we can protect our downside by pivoting to more of a long-term strategy and still being able to service our debt and and in you know sort of a doomsday scenario maybe being able to afford you know move in um, people that want to be there for more of a long-term um, stay than they do for you know as much recreational purposes. So yeah. I think for us just looking at it, we said that that's a good way to protect our downside is just you know being able to put some good parameters around the location itself and buying the right markets and then forward looking in terms of how we create value. Um, there's, there are a number of ways, but we love to find the communities that maybe just haven't, what oftentimes happens is that, you know, a, sort of a mom and pop owner start these businesses. They started 30 to 50 years ago. It was their absolute life for the first, you know, 20 to 30 years. And then eventually they start to get tired of running it and they start getting ready for retirement yeah. and they don't have a website or the website had, looks like it was built, you know, 20 years ago. There's no money going into any Google ad spend. All of the CapEx is, you know, there's a ton of deferred maintenance because they've been going out and spending all the money versus putting it back into the property. Um, so this really poses itself as easy upside where we can create a good online presence, create a good website, put money into Google ads, Facebook ads, um, be able to invest into all the deferred maintenance projects, be able to help bring the rates up to, to market and being able to 
run events. That's usually a huge part of this business too, is doing events you know, during the main season. We have campgrounds that do events every single weekend um, to be able to kind of give people a reason to come out and reason to gather and to kind of form a tight community. Um, and you know that tends to be sort of the the bread and butter is finding campgrounds that really can use just like you know you would with any uh, asset is finding like the value add um, component to it. That that's really our our bread and butter to so find the right market and then finding something that's got enough upside on it to to make sense of. Are you are you buying a lot from these mom paws? You know, there's still that I I know a couple. You know, like we were talking before the show, most of the campgrounds around us are, are smaller that are private, but even so, a lot of the owners live. They live there. Mm -hmm. Like I, I know quite a few that have a small house there, or the owners just live in in a camper there, and they've been there. Oh yeah, that that's probably I, I want to say forty percent of the purchases we bought. That was the case <laughs> where where they're living on site, and we're usually giving them a thirty day window after close to to help get you know all their stuff off the property and and, and move out. <laughs> Do you ever so. keep them there for uh, continued support and management? No, and I don't, you know, we've worked with some phenomenal owners, so this is not, this is not a, a blanket statement, but we definitely would never allow them to stay there because we've faced our issues where people, you know, they, they, they love the campground, they feel connected, they, they, you know, how entrepreneurs are is they feel like things should be done their way and yeah, then they see changes getting, drives them nuts, so it, yeah, that would right. Right. <laughs> you're trying to change too much and they're going to get pissed off and they're, yeah gonna, we'll keep it we'll keep the, the, the um, staff for sure like the staff yeah. themselves okay. we always try to keep because they're going to teach yeah. us so much about the properties but when it comes to the owners they just they tend to be so involved and you know they get their emotions so tied up in the place yeah. that i probably wouldn't do it <laughs> <laughs> i can see that i can see that uh how about like uh, amenities are there specific things you have to have on these campgrounds to to want to go move forward or at least be able to add yeah for sure so i i think the point i brought up earlier about not becoming obsolete is is important and i think that there's only really a handful of other you know what i consider to be like kind of the middle market private um owner operators like in our in our space that are sort of slowly consolidating some of the industry but um i think that's something that's important to all of us is to find ways to stay relevant and and stay um in the you know to be attractive to the modern day camper and some of the basics are one i'm not a huge believer that partial hookup sites will be very popular in the future so definitely having a full hookup site meaning that you have water sewer and electric um, partial hookup is usually just water and electric but we generally like to have longer term stays as well. And I think people are just getting so used to the convenience of having sewer on site. So we don't want to have partial hookup sites. So we're generally looking to convert the partial hookup sites into full hookup sites and have both 30 and 50 amp electric because a lot of the newer campers need 50 amp electric. A lot of old campgrounds were built with 30 amp um, electric pedestals. And in addition to that, uh, we need a laundry room because the little you know, all in one laundry units and the RVs are just not great. And everyone likes, yeah. <laughs> so everyone wants to go out and you have a good solid washer dryer that they can use. So we usually have just coin operator or, or now card operated um, washer dryers, um, having a bathhouse because for similar reasons, if you have multiple people in an RV, they're all cooped up in this small bathroom um, that just is not ideal for everyone. So having, you know, generally 
Um, bathhouses on site is a, is an absolute necessity. You know, if there's not one, we always will make sure we're adding both a laundry room and a bathhouse. Um, those are more of like the necessities than, you know, you have the, the bark parks, which are becoming closer to necessity. Um, and then from there, it's upgrading sites. Do you, you know, pave the roads? That can be a huge value add, adding concrete sites, adding what they call rearranging the sites to have buddy sites where two people can book a stay together and face each other during the middle of the day. Um, adding, we usually end up doing renovation to the clubhouse and the campground stores. Um, in some, we are currently adding pools um, and then having, we have blow up slides. We have actually like blow up axe throwing on one. We have pedal carts. We have um, golf course, yeah, mini golf courses. Those are pretty popular. Kayak rentals, boat rentals. One of them actually had a petting zoo on it. Uh, and um, Did you keep it? We we currently, we, we've scaled it down is what, yeah. what I'll say. <laughs> Um, it seems expensive and, to maintain that petting yes, zoo. Yes, exactly. Animals the, aren't the cheap time. to keep alive. Yeah, exactly. So there's kind of a liability and then the maintenance. Yeah. yeah. So um, we have like little gold rush things where kids can mine for gold on, on there. So a lot of it, as you see, kind of a trend is like it's family oriented stuff. Yeah. A lot of the time trying to find stuff that the kids can do um, and, and kind of keep uh, keep it focused on families as that generally is what is going to keep kind of drawing people out there. Um, but yeah, just to the point of, again, being like relevant in today's age too, it's just a lot of these things were just built with smaller sites back when people had smaller campers. And, you know, there's just, there is a lot of work that goes into just making, making it fit today's standards that people have. What are the red flags to look for when you're looking at, you know, either these or, you know, we haven't talked mobile home park really, but it, you know, yeah. you also do mobile homes. Well. So either, you know, the RV campgrounds, mobile home parks, what are some red flags that you're really looking out for? Yeah, sure thing. So since we've been mainly talking RV, I'll start there and then I'll hit on traditional MH, but the, on the RV side, I think the biggest mistake that I see people make is over is focusing too much on painting sort of the rosy upside without true concrete data to back their um sure this on deals so, so i think that that's probably the danger but, with all uh asset anything. classes yeah. right yeah is, is yeah. trying to assume you can do too much right <laughs> yeah exactly well exactly but you usually at least with other stuff you generally can get more data whereas in this case like you can easily just tweak sure. it from 40 percent occupancy to 50 percent occupancy and that looks great right but um yeah so so i think the um the dangers are weak locations that's the number one that that freaks me out the most and is the number one thing we try to stay away from is being too tertiary to where you just might not you know, become sort of relevant in the future. So and, is that the weak location by weak location? You know, is that the, the within an hour of the city? You also mentioned you like to buy stuff on the coast. Are you talking like on, on the coast? Some like of ours are on access? the coastal and then some of them are um, more like within 10 to 15, like 15 minute drive. From yeah, the so short drive where somebody could get there. You have to have a destination, right? You have to have a reason yep. to go. Is that kind of 
the the you have to either have a destination or be the destination um so you know if you like a lot of these resorts going up in florida right now are just you know amazing but they're um they are the destination so they have on-site food and beverage and they have enough amenities and entertainment to keep people there all day long and they can do really well but if you're buying say a smaller campground when i say smaller probably anything under 200 sites you probably need to be at a destination that's going to drive them there because you're just not big enough to make yourself yeah. into the destination. Um, so yeah, we have two in the Smoky Mountains. A lot of ours are along the coast. Um, we love being on big lakes or bodies of water. You know, a lot of our people are big boaters, and that's the main reason they drive out there. So they have their toys, their RV, and their boat kind of uh, working side by side. Um, some of ours are near, you know, one, one near a zoo, one near another major attraction. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, I definitely think being in a location where there's a draw, but also being in a location where there's not just one draw that is your exclusive reason for being there, because that also can be detrimental too, right? So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and then on, you know, outside of that, I would say the um, private utilities, you, you know, we deal with a lot of that because generally the land that yeah. these places are built in, they just don't have public access to utilities. So you mm -hmm. deal with a lot more private utilities. Um, otherwise, there'd probably be subdivisions built there. Um, so you have to make sure you're getting the proper inspections done on your utilities. I'm not one to say there's no private utilities, because I think in this space, you sort of have to be somewhat open to it in order to you know get um, you know, meaningful level of deal flow yeah. but you have to be sure to protect your downside and get the right inspections and buffer you know right kind of contingencies um so understanding the private you, and as long but, as you're budgeting for i mean i live my house i have private well and septic and as right. long as you're budgeting for that or you can handle that big bill when it does come because it won't you know it's not going to come every year but it's going right. to come eventually and you're going to have to rework the septic and you're going to have to replace you know some you know well pumps and things like that but otherwise it's pretty much free to run too i guess you get the electric for the well pump but i mean you've it's very cheap and affordable to run so it's not going to cost you any more money but it just sneaks up on people. I think that's the yeah. It could measure. it could even be less money in some cases, just depending on how much it needs. Yeah, a lot of times it is. Um, the treatment plants are one of the are pretty common on the RVs because to build to have max density, a lot of times they end up putting the treatment sure. plant in instead of sure. septic. I I personally would take septic over treatment plant because I think there's less of the sort of catastrophic risk and it's more spread out across over time. But the treatment plants can be, you know, 500 up. We've seen them up to like a million bucks for, you know, treatment plant. Yeah. And, um, you know, you usually need a third party operator that needs to have a certain license to, to run it and operate it. So those are probably the trickier ones to, to get really comfortable with. Um, and we have, you know, three in our portfolio and in an overall um, have, you know, gotten comfortable. At least we've learned a lot more about them and been able to get, you know, relatively comfortable with the ones that we have, but it is, um, you have third-party operator risk on those and, you know, it's, it's hard to find other operators. And then if something goes wrong, it, it can be, you know, de definitely challenging to deal with the companies. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else that we missed or that um, hit on? I'm sure there's little things, right. But anything else big that you missed? No, I think that's, that's the bulk of it. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. Now you've mentioned mobile homes. Any mm -hmm. anything there? Yeah. So on the on the MH side, the mobile home side, um, I would say that the bigger 
flags are one, I mean, it's just competitive right now. So you, you really have to realize, you know, you're, you have to be thoughtful on, you know, your time to get to market rent. I think that's the issue is that a lot of people say, well, they own the home, which is the, the beautiful part is a lot of times you buy a tenant home community, they own the home and they have this sort of vested interest and it's expensive to move. But um, I think, you know, just given how competitive the market's gotten, like you have to be sort of conservative on the time it takes for you to get to market rent because a lot of your tenant base are either, you know, fixed income or social security. And, right. um, you know, I think in order to one, do right by your, you know, your residents and then two, to, um, you know, to make it a, a smoother transition, just giving yourself sort of time to get it up to market rent. Um, you also do run private utility risk. I think the infill place can be dangerous if you're in the wrong location. Infills when you have a vacant lot and you're bringing a home in to then sell the home off. If you have too low, even if infill or not, if you have too low of uh, a median home price for that county that you're purchasing in or the city you're purchasing in, sure. then then it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. You know, why would someone go and buy a mobile home for sixty thousand new when they could buy a single family home for the same price in certain areas, right? Yeah. So, um, making sure you're in a good location for that, and then, um, you know, I think making sure you're budgeting enough if you have park-owned homes we do a lot of park-owned homes i think it's because i started out in multifamily. we were pretty comfortable buying a lot of the ones where we own a lot of the homes and then over time we usually sell them off um but those they are not they are more fragile than traditional apartments and they do require you know a lot of work to be able to get them into you know pristine shape to be able to to sell um or to rent out so i think just making sure you budget um conservatively on the work that that goes into this that makes sense. So why as a, as an investor, or maybe you even as a, as an owner, what's, what's the attractive part? Like sell me on why I should invest in an RV park um, or, or even a mobile home park. Like sure. what would make it so, attractive? So a lot of this comes down to, you know, we always talk about the risk adjusted returns, right? And just making sure, you know, we're, we're comfortable with the overall returns and feel like they're competitive versus what else is out there. Um, and within the, I'll start with mobile home just because I think that's a little bit more well-known. So you probably don't spend as much time there, but um, with mobile homes, what's attractive is that a lot of times the resident owns their home. And if they don't, you probably over time will sell them that home. And then do you generally do that on like a rent to own? Either rent to own or third party. We have third party financing options available now too. Um, so once someone owns the home, they generally will stay in the community for 15 to 20 years. So traditional multifamily, you have people moving out every two years, yeah. whereas in an MH, it's it's you know 15 to 20 years. So you have a really, really sticky resident base. Um, and the cost, of, though you are dealing with a generally lower income um, tenant base, the difference is that the all-in lot rent generally is, you know, $500 or less, or you know, sometimes it's a little bit more depending on the location, yeah. but it's it's such a small amount and they already own their home. So they have this pride of ownership and it would cost thousands of dollars to go move the home. So they're really invested in this community more than they are more than they would be if they were just a traditional apartment renter so you have someone that's invested in the community invested in taking care of their home and um, they're highly incentivized to be able to you know pay their rent and and stay a part of that and it's usually the rent is half of what it is in a traditional apartment so um, it ends up being you know collections tend to be similar to 
you know, I don't know, somewhere 96 to 98% um, collections throughout the year. And um, so it's, it's a really steady, and then you have no CapEx or not no CapEx, but you have less CapEx than you, than you would if you owned all of the homes or you own a big building, you know, and, and that eats up and multifamily, everyone likes to you know, underwrite 250 to 450 or some, somewhere around those per year. But if you held it forever, I, I did venture to guess it's multiples of that, um, lots you know, lots more. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that go ahead. If, so, if somebody doesn't pay a mobile home park, you know, they're not paying their rent, you know, obviously with, um, the rentals with the rental, you just evict them and they're out and, you know, depending on your, your state municipality and all that kind of stuff, they're, they're out within, you know, usually 30 days or less, but of course, it depends on where you're at if you're in California or Chicago or something like that, it yeah. might be a lot more, but uh, for the most part, you know, 30 days or less. Now, is that similar? Is it eviction or is it a foreclosure? Like what, so, like what, what's I, the I would say our, there? our, our operations staff is going to have a better answer than I would sure. in terms of the state by state dynamics. But, um, you know, our preference is sort of a cash for keys scenario where we can buy their, their home off them if they're struggling to then go and resell it because we don't have to deal with if they if they just abandon it, then you have to go through sort of a title process to be able to regain access sure. to the home. And that can be like several months of downtime, which can be challenging. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of the high level overview, but it does vary quite a bit based on the County and the state that you're, um, operating in. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Then going back to the RV question on, um, why would you invest into RV campgrounds? The industry itself has seen on an average pre COVID, it was around 6% year over year, uh, compounded annual growth rate. And it was, wow. uh, I think it was. About double that during um, when COVID uh, when, when COVID hit. So I think it was like eight percent or something average from like 2012 up till uh, I think it was 2022. Um, so the industry itself has seen has seen a huge level of growth. Um, similar to our discussion prior to jumping on here, um, you know, a lot of people were used to thinking of campgrounds as sort of either like tent camping or uh, state parks, and everyone's appetite has just changed. I mean, it's similar to how people spend money on their dogs in ways that they used to never spend money on their, you know, their, their pets. And, you know, camping is similar in a sense that instead of roughing it in the woods, like people used to do sort of growing up, like now everyone has this sort of appetite for glamping and, and a different level of experience when they're going on vacation. So I think now for the first time, really the campers on the average campers, well, the average camper is, has a household income over a hundred thousand. So that, that I think has changed a little bit. It's not really just an affordable uh, vacation option anymore. And, and uh, two, they're looking for, um, you know, more experiential opportunities and they want things, you know, I always like to say like the younger crowd is liking things sort of done for them. And the millennials are one of the leaders in driving camping right now. Everyone thought it'd be the baby boomers, but millennials have really been leading the pack and, you know, they want things more done for them and they want more of a glamping experience. They want more um, on-site activities. And I think that um, that has uh, really driven the industry and, and, um, then you look at it and you have, I think it's about, I've heard anywhere between nine and a half to 11 million total households in, in the US that that own RVs. Um, and there's about a million, just under a million or so private um, campsites um, throughout the country. And, uh, you know, the, if you look at a lot of 
even if you want to get a sample size, if you're not already a camper and you want to get a sample size on sort of what RVers are seeing today, like you can go on YouTube and find tons of vlogs to kind of see what people think and what they like about campgrounds and their appetite and um, sort of learning the market as I did a whole lot of early on. Um, and uh, you can see there's a, there's a common complaint about there not being enough good sites available anymore. And, you know, people used to be able to go on a spontaneous weekend. They used to say, it's Friday, let's go camping down, you know, at the local campground, but now they have to book months in advance. So um, I think a lot of people would say that there's a bit of an undersupply and, and especially an undersupply of more of the the quality of campgrounds that people are now looking for. Sure. So you're starting to see a lot of these like resorts and, you know, these, these campgrounds that you just never would have seen 10 years ago come up. Yeah. All, all really fascinating. I mean, you're right. And I, I, these little private campsites are, are kind of fun. I mean, uh, we, we are traditional or I am traditional, but maybe not my wife and kids would like probably more of that the the experience of the campground but i'm like the, the tent camper you know type of guy uh i want my private site but we went to it was uh two summers ago uh we you know the the state park was all full and there was a private campsite really close by and so that's where we stayed we were able to get a site there uh but man it was a blast they had the of course they had the pool and they had uh they had a lake and they had all the blow up stuff in the lake and yep. bounce houses and you climb up to the top and do backflips off it and whatever else you wanted to do. And it, it was just a lot of fun. They had tractor rides and stuff like that. And I think it was only like a hundred or so, so, uh, sites, but it was a really cool experience to have. And that's typically not, not my style of camping, but after doing that, I was like, that was really fun. I can see why people are really attracted to these, <laughs> these campgrounds. So, um, Really cool. I fascinating. I, I you're the first person I've had on this show. And I've got man, I mean, we're approaching 600 episodes. You're the first person I've had on this show that has talked RV parks. So that's great. That's really yeah. cool. <laughs> how's how's how about the cash flow? Is it is this is this like a cash flow business? Is yeah. there a lot of equity upside? What's the main play? Yeah, let's definitely talk. Let's definitely talk returns. I mean, one of the big draws for our investors is the tax benefits. Tax benefits generally tend really? to be significant compared to traditional. I always compare back to multi just because I started there, so it's easy as a frame of reference. But um, you know, it definitely tends to be with the depreciation. Um, we've seen over for every dollar invested, over a dollar loss using about somewhere you know sixty probably 65% average leverage all in somewhere in that range. Hmm. Um, so we've gotten just like mobile home communities, they have just a, a little bit of a faster depreciation schedule. Once you get the cost seg done to where you get a pretty nice loss um, uh, during that first year, obviously things are changing with the step down of, of the bonus depreciation right now, but um, that's been a huge driver for our investors. And then when we talk about the cash flows, uh, generally, our cash flows, um, it really varies based on whether it's long-term or short-term. I, I like to think that on a long-term campground, you may average closer to, uh, we definitely want to be at 10% or, or greater by year three on a long-term campground, um, but maybe we're averaging somewhere in like that nine and a half range um, over like a five-year period, I would say, for, for something that's got more annual site agreements, um, because that is a little bit more stable revenue, sure. whereas on something that has more of a short-term component, 
we're probably trying to get by year three closer to that. If it was if it was all short term, we'd probably be looking at like a fifteen percent um, cash on cash by year three, and then definitely averaging well above ten um, percent. Probably underwriting, we like to for the technical people out there, we we probably want to get up to like a twelve percent unlevered yield on on cash for you know something that's got short term uh, maybe 11 percent for something that's got long term and then exit you know can be anywhere between say like a seven to like an eight and a half um maybe nine if it was a softer location um just and depending on the makeup of the place but that's kind of rough numbers that that's that's kind of what we're talk, talking about on that side and then on like the irr side um usually we like to say like for the investors like high high teens is like we like to set the the benchmark um and we like to always have i think there's always like chance we can overperform with um you know yeah. having a market because, are, yeah. and are you are you doing five-year projections is that kind of like the typical yeah five year. yep okay we we generally like to be longer term like we like to look at refinancing and holding past that point but we we always just do a five-year projection what do you finance them banks um we've taken banks. a lot of We've done a lot of recourse debt with national banks that specialize in the asset class, but there are non-recourse options, especially as you grow a portfolio. You can look at CMBS or life insurance companies, and there are also like a few recent specialized non-recourse debt funds that I've seen come up. But it's a lot of, um, for us right now, it's a lot of national banks that specialize in the asset class. And then um, also we will shop local banks as well. Interesting, man. Fascinating. Love it. What's a mistake that you've made, uh, you know, in the business uh, in, in whatever aspect, whatever you want to cover, what's a mistake that you've made and how can our listeners learn from it? Yeah. So on early mobile home deals, I brought up the point of um, underfunding your capital expense. Um, you know, thankfully we've, we've made it through um, the thick of it on you know the the bulk of of these situations, but on, on a few of the earlier mobile home deals, I think I was thinking of them more like similar to apartment costs on how much we budget to do our rehabs before we sell them off, and realize pretty quickly that um, you know they they're more susceptible to water damage. They're just not as sturdy of materials as a lot of you know more traditional apartments. So we ended up just going over on a lot of those initial um, budgets and. Uh, you know, that, that, that's frustrating, painful, and, you know, definitely have, uh, now, now buffer like, uh, a lot more than I did on some of those early deals. Um, and I think on the RV side, we have, um, probably just, we, we bought a lot of smaller campgrounds more around like the hundred site level. Um, and I think that, that I mean, it's been helpful to get us started, but I probably would have went to like the 200 plus site level quicker as you realize that, you know, when you have one or two um, people on staff, it can, you're putting a lot of weight on, well, it's usually, usually at least two, but then you have some part-time staff too. But when you have a smaller team on these campgrounds, um, which they, they can only afford so much of a team on that size, um, you do start to, you're kind of at risk if someone leaves, then, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to have to have a regional fly out and fill in or, um, you know, it kind of leaves you more vulnerable. Whereas on the larger campgrounds, if you have 
you know, four plus full-time people, like you, you have a team there. So you're not really as susceptible to damage if someone leaves or takes off. And um, it's, it's actually easier to operate the larger ones, whereas the smaller ones, um, I think can be a little bit trickier at times. So um, it probably would have went larger sooner on those. Um, and then, you know, just knowing that, uh, yeah, just knowing that that's, that's where, you know, there's a reason that the institutions are mostly gearing for that size. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like apartments, right? It's like probably any uh, commercial asset, the bigger you scale that, the the more efficient it is. It's just just how it is. Better exit, more efficient, yeah, better, better debt. exit too. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Love it. Mel, man, this has been great. Let's pivot a little bit. Um, what's a favorite book you can recommend to our listeners? So my go-to is usually uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Just a big fan of Love that it. book and the way that he helps you think about, you know, your life and your business as coming down to a bunch of decisions that you can have principles that help you guide those decisions and, you know, make better, have lead to better outcomes. So, um, how do you like to give back? Right now, I think I give back mostly through just helping either the people around me or mainly just, you know, think about this industry, just, you know, a lot of my friends, like I'm always, always happy to pour in, offer advice, offer help and support to, you know, those, those around me. I think that's my, my primary form of giving back at this stage of my life. Love it. That's always, always valuable. Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? So my three pillars of wealth creation, I would say number one is education and just building um, a solid foundation for yourself and then two is having more of a seek to serve mentality to be able to just put yourself in a position to learn and grow and add value to those around you and then three you know eventually after getting educated seeking to serve and you know adding value to people around you eventually that that comes into you know the wealth realization phase um which is you know where, where you're you're able to build um you build your vehicle and, and uh, help you continue to grow. So my philosophical three. Dylan, this has been great. Uh, really appreciate it. I've loved talking uh, RVs. Uh, I just, it's just fascinating that uh, I, like I said, I've never talked to somebody that owns campgrounds before and uh, it's, it's super cool. And camping is like a big part of my life. So I just love like talking about this has been a, a lot of fun. Um, I'm sure our listeners have gotten a ton out of it. It's a, it's a cool uh, niche and I love what you're doing with it. And uh, definitely appreciate you coming on the show, uh, adding a ton of value. So uh, with that said, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Learn more about what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks a lot. It was great to be on the show. And as far as following along with us, definitely plug in, add me on LinkedIn. Um, it's probably the one social media platform I stay active on and, uh, also, you can follow us uh, through the requitygroup.com. And we have a show called Requity Insights as well, which is both the YouTube show and, and uh, podcast that we tend to teach on. Awesome. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. Appreciate it again. And uh, you have a fantastic rest of the day. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, Todd. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. 
go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. The rating and review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like, uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go up to coachwithdex.com and check that out. And, uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.